When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome, listeners, to another episode of The Extra Inch. My name is Windy, and I'm joined by my tactics guy, Nathan A. Clark. Hello, Nathan. Hello, mate. And another special guest, straight from Nathan's Rolodex, it's John McKenzie. Hello, John. Hi, mate. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for joining us, John. Before I um, introduce John properly and we speak a little bit about what he does and his background, as you may have heard in our previous episodes, we've got ourselves a sponsor, and they are the OneFootball app which is a football app available on the App Store and Google Play. They've currently got an article about Hyunmin Son, which was actually really informative for me because I hadn't realised that he's going to miss games in the Asian Cup. Nathan, had you realised this? And, and what the heck are we going to do without Son? <laughs> yeah, we sort of... Uh, I, I read a, sort of much earlier in the year that we sort of hatched out a deal with the Asian Games and the Asian Cup. So he missed the last lot of international friendlies and stuck around with us and was fresh and, you know, obviously performed very well against Chelsea on, on account of that freshness. And yeah, that sort of general deal also includes him going away for a bit in January. Um, but I think you just sort of accept it and, and that's the way it is. And we and we do get some back from that. And also we have the depth in his sort of position that it's not in the world that we lose him for a couple of weeks. So it's not too bad. Yeah, I guess with Lucas now, we're, we're better stocked in terms of uh, direct runners in the final third. So hopefully um, we will cope and, and some won't suffer from burnout. Let's move on to talking about John and, and his beloved Leeds United, because I think there's so much of interest to say about Leeds at the moment. But John, first, before we start talking about Leeds, can you give us um, a bit of background about what it is you do and, and how you got to that point? Because, you know, from our, from our brief chats uh, just before we started recording, you've got a really interesting background that uh, doesn't necessarily lend itself to writing about football. So how did you end up here? Yeah, it's it's very much less exciting than than you might think. Um, I'll I'll warn you at this point, but <laughs> I, I I started out my life as a, as a career academic, um, so that meant that I did my undergrad, did a bit of graduate work, did a bit more graduate work, did a bit more graduate work. So I spent a lot of time in academia about must have been about ten years in the end, um, and as part of that, when I was doing my my PhD, I ended up doing quite a bit of lecturing on the side, uh, which sort of dragged my PhD out um, for, 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 for six years, so twice as long as most people spend doing their, their PhD. When I actually eventually handed the PhD in, uh, after those six years, 
the the I had my Viva, so that's a that's an oral examination with, yeah, stop sniggering. You, you, you have this oral <laughs> examination for for what, two two or three hours, um, it, it, with two. Um, with a, an academic from your own institution and an academic from another institution. At the end of that um, Viva, mine went on for three hours, which is long. Um, they decided they wanted me to spend another six months <laughs> working on on my PhD, restructuring this thesis. They liked my argument. They wanted me to add a chapter. And they wanted me to take a couple of chapters out, and they wanted me to change the structure, which was nominally fine, I suppose. But when you've been working six years on something, that's not really what you want to hear. And the problem was is that I'd uh, by this point, I'd pretty much run out of money. Um, <clears throat> and so what happened at this point is I ended up moving into uh, working and doing bar work and pub work around um, uh, around Cambridge, which is where I was, and getting more and more disillusioned with the whole idea of academia. Um, and at the side, on the side, I was, I was starting to do a lot more writing about football. Um, and it got to a point where I had decided that that I enjoyed writing about football more than I enjoyed working in academia. I wouldn't say I enjoyed writing about football necessarily more than writing about philosophy, um, but the academic world is is a very specific uh, a specific type of um, existence, and it's very cutthroat and it's very thrust. And I guess I I decided uh, I I reached a point where I realised actually there was no point in me ending uh, finish, finishing my PhD. I couldn't afford to do it. I had to get a job, and I ended up getting a job in uh, for a small website called Real Sport that has since pivoted to esports. But I was their football editor for about a year, and so I I've I've sort of ended up in in the football media um sort of quite askance after about 10 years in the in in uh academia and the way you described the academic world and community just then i mean football writing has gone that way too it's incredibly cutthroat there's a there's a there's a real um lack of money going floating about which Mm -hmm. which leads to people making decisions that aren't necessarily the best for the reader um, mm-hmm. But are, are, are you know in the interest of keeping blogs going, websites going, it's it's become a very um, difficult world to navigate. Do you feel like your your sort of background, your career in academia, has set you up for this this kind of uh, world you're now finding yourself in? I think that there are skills that I've learned during my time in academia that have helped me um, in the in the whole uh, football media context, in the sense that. You know, when you are when you spend that amount of time in in academia, you you're taught how to write well, you're taught how to argue well, you're taught how to think well, and that that's obviously generally beneficial uh, in the football media. Not that you can get away with writing things without necessarily arguing well or thinking well, but I, I've definitely benefited from from that from that side of things. Yeah, but there is that there there is that cut and th- cut and thrust that we've talked about. It is it is cutthroat, but also I think a lot of people go into academia with sort of very highfalutin ideas about making a difference in the world and I guess the longer I was in it the more I realized that so much of it came down to to being um, I suppose a lot less uh, idealistic than I thought it would be and I think this is a sort of common experience a lot of people have in academia particularly now as you've mentioned you know there there are certain economic political conditions under the surface of what's going on Mm. and I think that has change the ability that you can have to be as creative and idealistic as you might have been in other time uh, periods but but also I think when you're in the middle of it you start thinking why am I doing this I'm not getting I, I don't feel as though I'm making a huge impact on the world and when you're in that sort of industry and and one of the main benefits is you feel as though you can be making an impact in the world I think it sort of raises questions about why it is that you're there and so for me writing about football was 
in many respects, like I, I was attracted to that because it was unimportant. I like the fact that, you know, football at the end of the day does not really matter. Um, it's obviously, and that's why it's important, right? In a, in a weird uh, paradox. Um, but I like the fact that I could write about football and, you know, if someone disagrees with it, then they disagree with it. And then it, it, you move on. Whereas I guess when you're writing about <laughs> subjects like philosophy and theology, they sort of weigh heavy on you a little bit more. And I would imagine that there's, um, when you're writing, like you say about philosophy, there's a there's a narrow readership there, isn't there? There's a, there's a group of academics who are philosophers who will who will gain you know something from from your writing, and it might even be held up as a, a future text for students in the future to read and whatnot and reference, and and that must be in, in, incredibly gratifying. But the the base for writing about football is so much larger. There's such a huge pool of people who have an interest in in football. Um, although it's it you know, like you say, matters in inverted commas less, it, it, it touches more people and it impacts more people. So you can presumably make more, more inroads with that in that way. Um, I'm, I'm, I could talk about your, your career for a lot longer, but I'm, I'm conscious <laughs> that uh, you probably feel a little self-conscious talking about it and, um, and we've got a lot to cover. So we'll move on. Um, and let's move on to talk about another of your projects. Um, some people may know that you are a moron. Others may not know this. Tell us what, <laughs> tell us what morons is. Yeah, so Morons is a podcast that, that I run and we record every week. It's just me and Nico Morales, who I think you had on did you have on the last episode, I think. Yeah. Um or maybe the one before last. Um but we it's just me and Nico, we chat about things. Um we don't really plan a huge amount and it tends to be about football, although it can be on anything really. We we did an episode the other day just on film. And so um yeah, that the the idea of well, so originally we, we I started a team of John O'Shea's when I was at university when I was still doing the academia stuff and there was a group of us friends at the university who who would go on we 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 were a bit more of a I guess a standard football podcast then we we seemed we we thought of ourselves as being quite different and we we sort of modelled ourselves on uh, asking the questions that answering the questions that no one was asking in some <laughs> kind of which we thought was really clever at the time but uh, it basically we we were we were we were trying to think of interesting angles on what the football media were talking about so the first episode we recorded was how good would a team of John O'Shea's actually be? Um, and then we moved on and talked about what sort of player would be the best player to have a team entirely composed of. Uh, and we sort of, we, we did things like that. We tried to take what was being talked about in the media and then give it a sort of uh, irreverent twist. Um, and we ran that for about a couple of years um, until I, I moved down to London with my, with my job and then it, it sort of died out. But then I'd recorded a podcast with Nico on his old podcast, which is called the Rondo um, while I was at university. And, for some reason or other, Nico and I ended up recording um, a, a few podcasts together and we just decided to make it into a thing. And it started out as me, Nico and some guests, but that took ages to edit. So uh, it's just become me and Nico, although it has become more guests um, recently. So we've had Nathan on the last episode, which will be out at some point when I can get around to editing it. Um, but uh, for Nico and I, uh, we share sort of fairly similar views on, on football and the world. Um, and we just end up having chats about about football and and, and anything else that comes into our head political political stuff will come up here and there um but yeah if you if that sounds it's a little bit out of the off the beaten track of football podcasts i think it's it, we try and just have a conversation it's a bit more conversational and and 
the, the we can go off in tangents anywhere so i don't know whether anyone would enjoy that but we enjoy it so that's what matters to us I, I i like it a lot i think it's it's really um unique in its kind of long form style you it's like you said it's conversational um but it's not just brief conversations you go deep on on all kinds of things <laughs> and it's it's fascinating and one of the things you have gone deep about and i've i've picked up from listening to to morons um over the past probably year um is you seem absolutely fascinated by the way that football media works and I suspect um, that this is this is your academic background, wanting to understand why something is the way it is, um, and and trying to create theories around that. Um, is that is that a particular thing that plays in your mind? And is that something? Where does that come from? Yeah, I think there's two angles on this. I think one of them is is the fact that you know when whenever we're talking about football, we are doing that. We are talking about football. There is there is. As, as I view it, the world of football is 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 a sort of phenomenon that is out there and and will be played regardless of whether or not people talk about it or not. But it's the fact that people talk about it that makes it so interesting. Um, and I think a lot of the time we don't really think about what's involved in that, the sort of impact that the way that we talk about football can have on on the way that we perceive football or understand football. Uh, and I find that, yeah, like you say, there's, there's probably a little bit of my academic interest coming into that because I spent a lot, a lot of the time when I was doing my uh, PhD, I was thinking about what does it mean to perceive the world? What does it mean to experience the world? Um, and how does the way that we, we talk about the world impact the, the the way that we think that the world is? And and the underlying argument of my PhD or the un- underlying story that my PhD was trying to react against was this idea that... Um, Protestant theologians had started talking about God in a way that became problematic in terms of the way that you talk about experiencing the world and as a result of that atheism happened and so when you when you're when you're looking at the world in that sort of way you're having a, a keen awareness of the fact that the, the words that you use can have such a big impact as to essentially change the religious outlook of the majority of people in the western world um then then i suppose that you you are naturally going to raise those sorts of questions when you move into something like the football media um so there was that side of things there was also uh, an offhand comment made by miguel delaney when he he um <laughs> commented to me once saying oh you don't you think you know so much about the industry but you don't know about the industry and I sort of took that on the chin and said right fa- fair enough probably don't know about enough about the industry and so I'm going to make it my mission to to learn a little bit more about the industry and what what that has re- what has resulted from that has been uh, another podcast the football media podcast that I run where I spend uh, about an hour a week interviewing people from the industry outside the industry in, in the wider industry just talking about the industry itself again it's not something that a lot of people will be interested in but I think that it's absolutely fundamental for people who are working in the media to actually have an understanding of of some of the mechanics behind the scenes in in the in the media and so that's where that has come from and it's actually it's actually led to a lot of um eye-opening experiences for me in terms of finding out what's what's going on behind the scenes and looking at the wider media in general it's fascinating seeing the sorts of innovations that are going on um in 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 so many different areas in in the in the print media in the digital media looking at things like uh, marketing models how do you monetize your models what kind of impact does the do the models that we use have have on us or what impact does ad ad revenue model have on its consumers and and so I've, i found that really fascinating and so if, if you if that kind of stuff interests you then head over to footy media pod uh, twitter feed which is at footy media pod i think um and we've got a few episodes up there um they're also on the team of john o'shea's platform as well so if you subscribe to that you'll you'll get them dropping into your feeds awesome um i think we should probably go and speak about leads now because 
they, they suddenly got interesting. Well, you've obviously followed Leeds for a long time, John. Um, Nathan, how excited were you when Leeds appointed uh, Bielsa as their new head coach? Yeah, no, it was, it was great to, to have Bielsa in English football. Um, and also, you know, at my mate's club and everything. Um, the idea of, you know, this sort of um, idealist and, and, and theorist in the, the, the muddy, gritty championship is... Um, you know, it, and it has it has sort of returned on that promise of been have been really good to watch. Um, I've watched a few matches alongside John. Um, yeah, it's been brilliant. I I did a bit of research uh, for this podcast, and that research was listening back to the first ever extra inch, which was from 2016, and we spoke at length about Bielsa and his influence on Pochettino. And I just want to point out a, a couple of things from listening back that <laughs> aren't necessarily Bielsa specific, but just amused me. So. Um, firstly, we we bigged up David Luiz. Um, yeah, that's that's awkward. Uh, we we spoke a lot actually about how Pochettino improves players and how that that is a thing that happens and how much he'd he'd worked with Dembele. And yet here we are, sort of I don't know what eighteen months, two years later, surprised at the rise of Musa Sissoko. Why why are we surprised? This is what Pochettino does. Um, and we spoke about Christian Eriksen as well. He was having a, a, a slight dip in form at the time of recording that. And uh, I said some things that I now regret about Christian Eriksen. <laughs> but if you're interested in Marcello Bielsa and uh, the the impact that he has had on um, on Pochettino, then go back and listen to that first episode. Uh, we, we it's, it's quite raw. Nathan, you sound a bit nervous actually when I listen back. I I was embarrassingly. <laughs> I I really cared about having a good first episode, mate. Oh, oh, you did. You did a great job. Um, <laughs> I I I did less of a great job. I think I've got better with time. Uh, and and Bardi's just Bardi. Uh, what, what more can you say about Bardi? But <laughs> it was it was interesting listening back, and it was it was quite sweet actually. Um, but but let's talk to John a little about about Bielsa and how this all came to be. So Leeds Leeds had a, got a new owner in 2017. Did he? Is there links between him and Bielsa that made this happen, John? I'm not entirely sure of of any explicit link. There may well be links behind the scenes, but I, I think Andrea Rajatsani is is clearly he clearly took over the club with the express uh, purpose of of getting it up into the into the Premier League and uh he's yeah he's serious about doing that you know andre andre is the owner of 11 sports who clearly have um they have great ambitions in in the tv broadcasting uh realm so uh, you 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 get from that what 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 you expect for him uh, from him in terms of his football team and and that is that he wants the leads to be in in the premiership interestingly enough i I do wonder whether or not he might be the sort of manager who gets leads in the Premiership and become. I don't want to say. I don't want to invoke the the, the spirit of uh, Mike Ashley, but hmm. you know this this is a big business owner. He's he's savvy. He knows what he's doing. He knows that you can get a huge amount of coverage from having uh, your club in the Premier League. The question is going to be how much money is he willing to put into that? And um, at the moment that's fine because we're in the championship we're having a great time we're enjoying the football but very quickly it could become now that we're in the premier league if we should get there um what's the what's the owner going to do it's all about that sweet sweet yo-yo money that's where it's at Up yeah and down. exactly that's the way yeah the, I, the thing with um Bielsa over over the years has been that he's he's been seen as a very gung-ho manager uh in, in style he's always uh had the emphasis on attack. But this year, Leeds have been quite tight at the back and they're actually, they have the third best defensive record in, in the division. 
Um, they have scored goals, obviously. You'd expect that with the Bielsa team. But is this um, a sign that he's 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 developed as a, as a manager or is he just essentially too good for the championship? How have they been defensively, John? Yeah, I don't... <sighs> I don't think that we've been particularly impressive defensively. Um, I think we've benefited from the fact that, I mean, we've benefited from the fact that um, we we have got players who've responded well to Bielsa's um, approach. We've also been unlucky insofar as we've we've lost a lot of defenders to injuries and there's questions raised about whether or not Bielsa's intense um, training regimes, um, whatever they may be, have, have impacted that. But I, I actually think we've been relatively, I think we've been relatively lucky to be, um, to have such a good defensive record. Um, we're, the current, we're currently playing um, Stuart, tonight we will, we're playing tonight, we'll play Stuart Dallas at right back who is a left winger by trade uh, we've then got Liam Cooper who the majority of Leeds fans think is not good enough for, for the championship he is in fact our captain um, and then we've got a, a guy called Apo Halme playing alongside him at the moment who is a I think he might be 19 uh, Finnish player who made his debut last week because all of our other centre-backs uh, are injured um, we do have we do have Barry Douglas back he was injured for a bit but we, we, we've gone from having quite a solid defence to, to having quite a sketchy defence and we have conceded some goals um because we haven't, because yeah, because we've quite frankly been all over the place structurally. Um, so I think that our defensive record, it's not coming from, and we're not. It's not as if we're sitting back and we're sitting deep, um, particularly um, more than than you might expect. I think we've just been fairly lucky. We also are lucky to have um, Calvin Phillips playing in a sort of holding role, which becomes almost a centre back role at times, depending on how many um, strikers we're playing against. So um, I wouldn't be too excited about the the the, def- the defensive side of things. It's the it's the attacking side of things that is a lot more exciting for me. So what kind of formation is, is Bielsa adopting? Is he, he was always a back three manager and you've just explained there that Calvin um, Phillips is, is dropping in to make a back three. Does that mean that essentially he's, he's playing a back four um, out of possession and a, and a back three in it? It depends who he's playing against. If he's right. playing against a, a lone striker, he will tend to play just two centre-backs. And if he's playing uh, against two two strikers, which you get a lot more in the championship, he'll he'll go with a back three. Um, so, but the beauty is is that he can just play Calvin Phillips as a centre-back, um, and he likes to play him there because he's a good he's a, he's, he's good at uh, winning back possession, but he's also a really good uh, transitional player. He's he's good at moving the ball around, and and he's he's just been so so impressive in that role. And I think a lot of Leeds fans were just again we've you've already mentioned how Bielsa takes players and he. And he Put someone to that next level. Um, Calvin Phillips was sort of he was he was part of that group of players at Leeds who everyone else moved on and he stayed and everyone sort of saw him as being the the the, the sort of the little pig that stayed at home. Um, but we had Lewis Cook, he moved on. We had Sam Byram, he moved on. We had Charlie Taylor, he moved on. And, and Calvin Phillips has actually, in many respects, with the exception of, of Cook, has, has surpassed the other two for sure. Um, so that's a testament to the to the way that, that Bielsa has been managing us. But yeah, so the, he, at, the, at the moment we're playing, we're, at the moment we've been playing a back four most of the time. And then we've, we sort of play two midfielders in front of, of that back four, one of which will be Calvin Phillips, who can, as we've said, can drop into in between the two centre-backs and create a, situ- a situational back three. Um, and then we'll have like a ball carrier um, who, who will it'll sort of sit between um, Phillips and then the attacking centre midfielder. And it depends on who that will be. We've got a guy called Samu Sayers, who's very impressive, but he's sort of dropped dropped off in form. So we now play Matthias Klick, uh, the Polish player there. Uh, and then we have 
Kimar Roof in front of him as a striker, and then we have two wide players, Pablo Hernandez, who is probably the most important player at the club at the moment, and then we have um, Gianni Alioski on 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 the left as a wide midfielder. So general, that's the, generally the way we've, we've been setting up, and so a lot of people have made a, a lot of the. Uh, the Bielsa three three one three. We've really not played that that much this season. But the problem the problem is is that the, the formation does become very fluid. Um, so, like we've said, if, if Calvin Phillips drops back between the two centre backs, we're essentially playing with a back back five, and 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 so it's kind of and and then your your centre uh, your wing backs sorry are pushing up really high, and then your your two centre midfielders are pushing out wide, and it, you know you, you, before you know it, you're, you're looking at formations, you're saying it's not, it's not really useful to talk about what formation this is anyway. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss quality sleep is essential that's why the sleep number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature sleep number smart beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together jd power ranks sleep number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store and now save 50 percent on the sleep number limited edition smart bed for a limited time for jd power 2023 award information visit jdpower.com awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com nathan in, in your watching of Leeds so far is this has has this been classic bielsa or do do you see him as a, a player who's who's modernized himself ha, uh yeah that's the, i mean we sort of got half a question i think it is it's worth touching on when we talked about bielsa before on the podcast on that first mm. episode we i sort of described him i think we sort of described him as this sort of you know slightly sort of mad fringe idealist um, who, whose football was maybe um, n- not always a reflection of his ideas and, and something a bit sort of um, edgier. And I wonder if, you know, either um, leads are a break from that trend or that trend is, is dramatically overplayed. And I've, I've been one for overplaying his, um, uh, well, his El Loco reputation, which is something that he, <laughs> he hates. Why does he hate that? John? Do you want me to answer that? Yes, please. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's really interesting. It, he, he will never, he will never use the phrase El Loco in press conferences. Um, he will always say, Oh, you guys have this nickname about me. Um, so it, it sometimes it, he said it the other day. I can't remember what he said. It's something like it's, I can't remember. He made some kind of really crazy batshit, um, <laughs> quote that, that everyone in the press box was like looking at each other. And he <laughs> basically came out and said, Yeah, you know, you, you, you guys have this nickname for me. Um, so I'm just going to play up to it now. Um, but he will never he will never use the phrase El Loco, and I I I suspect it's because you know he he's a smart guy. He has there is there is method behind the madness, and I think he gets frustrated precisely because he's being sort of portrayed as that sort of crazy uncle figure on the um, on the on the periphery. When in many respects his ideas have have been 
in, in, extremely um, generative for other managers. Um, and I, I guess the, the, there's questions to be asked about how how does Bielsa sort of fit into the genealogy of of managers, and I, I find that a really interesting question. Um, I know at the beginning of Jed Davis's book, Jed Davis has written a book on, on Bielsa called, I can't remember what it is, I've got it here actually. It's just called Revolution or Revolution, um, the philosophy of Marcelo Bielsa. Um, but he starts off with a quote from Borges, the, um, Argentinian author. Um, he's talking about translation and he uses this phrase, the, the original is unfaithful to the translation, which is obviously the, the way around that you wouldn't expect it to be. You'd expect the translation to be unfaithful to the original. But I, I think the point that Borges is making there is precisely this idea that when, when you make a copy of something, when you, when you move one thing to another and to another frame of reference, you don't have to be exactly this. It doesn't have to be exactly the same for it to be uh, a legitimate copy of that. And I think that's Jed Davis uses that at the beginning of his book because that's a really helpful image of of how you might talk about Pep Guardiola, you might talk about Mauricio Pochettino, or Tata Martino, or any of these managers that that you can uh, reel off who have been influenced by him. Um, how you can then talk about them as being within the same sort of tradition? Because I watch Pochettino's Tottenham, and it's nothing like watching Leeds. It's very different. Um, I watch Guardiola's Manchester City. It's nothing like watching Leeds, but at the same time, you can see why you might make that connection between between the two teams. So I find that that sort of question about about um, what Bielsa is is like and how how is it that he is so important when you watch him and he doesn't seem to have that that sort of intrinsic extrinsic link to to other uh, managers. If 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 this uh, Bielsa experiment in inverted commas, pans out. Where, where do you see this ending, John? Because typically he's never stuck around at clubs for too long. Two years, three years, sometimes four. If he, if he gets leads up this year, let's say he has a year in the Premier League, what, what then? Will he, will he want to stay around? Has he given indi- in, any indication at all as to whether he wants to, to manage leads in the Premier League? I think he, uh, I mean, he wants to get them up there. Um, and I imagine he would probably want to to manage them for for a little while at least um and let's not forget like bielsa is and he's keenly aware of this fact but he's he's not a successful manager really at all um he's he won a couple of um trophies in argentinian football he spent a bit of time in mexican football for a bit he's been in france he's been in spain he failed as a manager well, he didn't even get to i don't think he even lasted 48 hours in lazio in italy um and in, in in any of those times, he's not really been a manager who has taken a team from one place to another. Um, he's actually also, I don't think, managed a club who have been able to be promoted. So um, I guess this is a bit of an outlier. But the, the, the phrase, the idea that I always sort of fall back on when I'm thinking about Mar- uh, Marcelo Bielsa at Leeds is is the sort of Goldilocks effect. And and, and if, if the Goldilocks effect is in marketing is sort of, you know, if something's too expensive, people won't buy it. If it's too cheap, people won't buy it. It has to be just right. And I wonder whether or not Leeds United is the team that passes the Goldilocks test for for Bielsa insofar as I think when you put him in a team of players who are very good players who are elite players it's really hard to get them believing in the, in the project and believing in this sort of idealistic football as we've called it um, at the same time if you get a team that is full of players who aren't good enough to play football then you, you you're not going to be able to work the model either and I think Leeds maybe falls into that sweet spot where we've got enough good players to be able to play the way that he wants us to play without having so many egos that it becomes difficult to to actually make it work so I wonder whether or not 
there's a reason for me telling this uh, this analogy is that I wonder whether or not if we do make it into the Premier League and we start bringing in new personnel whether or not things will change um, whether or not it will be hard for maybe or not it's whether or not it's hard for Bielsa to manage top flight clubs uh, because there is an expectation by their players that they are the most important facet of the of the whole footballing system when they're at a club and there has to be a huge amount of, of, of faith in 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 what um, Bielsa's doing and we're going to talk about the idea of a burnout and um, from from the work that I've done in looking into these sorts of burnouts a lot of those burnouts seem to be um, emotional and I wonder whether or not again that's a, that's a question that's, that's that's going to come up whether or not the the intensity of working with Bielsa over a certain amount of time can can actually take its toll um, and whether or not by the time he gets into the Premier League if he if he should do that and I think it's by no means uh, certain that he's going to do that then that will be the the questions that will be asked how is how is the team going to function within the within the Premier League under those conditions let's let's do that now because I do think it's a fascinating topic Nathan when when Pochettino took over at Spurs there was this almost obsession that we would suffer from the burnout we we just would because he demands so much of his players in training on the pitch double sessions etc etc using a very small core group of players which would inevitably lead to them not having enough rest time has it panned out that way <laughs> well uh, initially yeah, the the suspicions and the fears were confirmed um, and we had those repeated drop-offs, but there were also sort of um, external context to them in so far as we, we lost the League Cup final and you know, I can't even remember the, the occasions for the second year, but there were, there were reasons why. And I think my suspicion is that um, it's a physical challenge. It's a real, you know, an athlete's challenge to get through a season with Pochettino, but it's not impossible. And I think that there's very much a crossover of the emotional and the physical there in that you have to push to get through that year. And if something like losing the League Cup final happens or dropping at the top four happens or a major injury happens, that's when you might see the drop off. But it's it's far from a guaranteed facet to playing under Pochettino. And we know that Jesus Perez, who's his his kind of second in command is there constantly monitoring the indicators around fitness and, and fatigue. Um, and they, they've certainly, from my perspective, seem to get better at taking players out of a team when they're struggling for, for fitness. Jo- so, John, how does that tie into your research around the Bielsa burnout? Yeah, so there's two facets to this, one of one of which is, I mean, to... to, to contextualize all of this i think what's really interesting about this is that people what people are doing when they talk about burnout is they're trying to develop a narrative and you guys will know better than anyone that when something goes wrong at the end of a season people try and pin it down to one thing so mm-hmm. for like you said for a while people said oh this is a, a physical burnout for for pochettino's team since then there's been that that sort of narrative of oh well you know that spurs they're bottlers um why i think that's really unhelpful is like nathan says there's so many contextual like particularities that are going on that could any of which could impact the the scenario that you've just got to be so careful that when you're talking about an end of season burnout you are aware of the fact that you have to be nuanced i mean look if you compare any club's record at the in the last few games of the season they're they're going to be impacted by the fact that for the majority of the teams there's already a foregone conclusion where they're going to end up in the league so you wouldn't talk about Tony Poulis's team, for example, suffering an end of season burnout, despite the fact that they barely win anything at the end of the season. <laughs> the narrative there is they're all on the beach already. 
And mm. I, I guess that's the frustration that I have. And so I, I've, I've written a piece recently for the iPaper where I, I just spent a lot of time just reading into the background of each of the seasons that, that Bielsa has done within reason. I didn't go too deep into Mexican football, I must admit. <laughs> but what I found was that there is, there's, there's two different things. One is that emotional burnout. And that clearly happened in his first um, season at Newell's Old Boys. Um, and what happens in, in the in the Argentinian divisions, you, the, the, the league is divided into two halves. You have the Apertura at the beginning and the Clausura at the end, which is... And if you win one, then you go into the final at the end of the season to decide who's going to be the winner. So if you win the first half of the season, you can then play against the, the winner of the second half of the season. So in, in Bielsa's first... Um, season they won the aperture so they won the first half of the season they were already into the final of, of of the championship at that point in that season and they dropped off in the second half of the season but which i guess makes sense right if you already know that you're in the final you know you're going to be there it doesn't matter so much about what you're doing um and they ended up winning that they won the championship and then they won the game at, at the end i think it, i can't remember who it was against um but then they they'd sort of got into this into this um dip and and it carried on into the second season and there's been a fair amount of coverage of this i think if you the, the best place to go is probably jonathan wilson's i think it's probably angels with dirty faces which is the better um the better chapter on this um but they're very similar the two um sorry the other one is inverting the pyramid um and juan manuel lop who is a player under um uh, Bielsa, he, he spends a lot of time talking about how how hard it is playing emotionally for someone like um, Bielsa, who expects all the time the highest um, efforts and etc. Uh, etc. Et so that, that, that was clearly an example of an emotional um, fall, fall off, and then they picked up in the second half of that second season. So they'd ha- they had this sort of dip from the first half, the second half of the first season, through to the first half of the second season. So it doesn't really seem to make any sense that it's exhaustion. Um, and I think a lot of the stuff that was going on behind the scenes seems to suggest that was emotional, and there was that there was so much pressure being put on them. And look, it was his first, it was his first coaching job at a, at a at a club a full club and so it's it would make sense that he might get certain things off balance in in that in that time the other season that gets brought up and this is an example of physical uh, burnout is his time uh, athletic club um and you've got ander herrera saying basically we couldn't move uh, and i think the quote was just we were fucked and that was that was it was clear that they 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 had a like like nathan said a really busy se- uh, season they'd got to the final of the Europa League although I think it might have been the UEFA Cup at that point <clears throat> and they got to the final of the Copa del Rey and they lost both, both of those finals one was to Barcelona and one was to Atletico Madrid um, and they lost a few games in a row towards the end of the season and you kind of think a lot was made of that because it's, it's, it, you finally got this Bielsa burnout happening before your eyes in, in a season but again the context behind that is um, they lost those games to Barcelona and Atletico Madrid. They're both both very good sides. And when they actually finished, they did lose a couple of games towards the end. They dropped a couple of spaces, but they their average position really hadn't changed in La Liga throughout the whole year. So again, whenever I think people are talking about um, burnout, I think it's just, just so important to remind people to think, um, to just think with a, a pinch of salt, because there's so many, there's so many um, underlying and contextual um, aspects to running a football team. And, and it's not so simple as just saying, well, you know, Marcelo Bielsa works his players really hard. I spoke to Jed Davis for, for that piece in the iPaper and he said, yeah, okay, 
Marcelo Bielsa has double sessions of training for a long time, but you've got to be aware that a lot of those um, training sessions will be, um, they'll be without the ball or they'll be without an opposition. And so that yes, they're intense because you're, you're doing a huge amount of tactical work, but in terms of physicality, they're not actually that, that physical uh, precisely because there's an awareness that you can't be too physical. It's, it will have a long-term effect. So yeah, all of these, all of these things sort of led me to <laughs> concluding as a, as a true academic might um, it's, you've got to be, you've got to be, careful when you talk about these burnouts could could Leeds United suffer a burnout yes they could suffer a physical burnout they could um they could um suffer a emotional burnout anything could happen they could like Nathan said we could have injuries we could have Bielsa is idealistic enough that he'll have disagreements with his backroom staff or with with his players that also could happen um and when I spoke to spoke to him in a press conference I asked him about the the injuries that Leeds have have had this season because we had a we have a huge amount of, of of injuries and off the top of his head he could just reel the average amounts of injuries his uh, team had had or his squad had had compared to other teams he said we're one of the best squads in terms of injuries none of our injuries are muscular they're all uh, they're more um, knock based injuries to and so they're, they're clearly aware of, of what's going on. So I think it's just a case of just w- watch this space and see if any uh, un- of these unknowns sort of come into play. I think to, to conclude on that, I, uh, um, the the idea of the Bielsa burnout and, and for Pochino too is, is is not baseless. It's not a total myth, yeah. but it it's not an absolute lock. Uh, you have to look mm. at the context, and also you have to not undermine. Um, undermine the the really intelligent sports science that's going on in both situations. They are these aren't idiots just running plays into the ground. There's there's a a lot of complex knowledge involved. Yep. Oh, so it's so fascinating. And in my head, I'm already thinking I want John to come back on later in the se- season and talk about <laughs> uh, whether this has come to fruition for Leeds and, and what's what's happening with their squad at that point. But just to bring it back to a, a Spurs context, I think it's so fascinating to hear you talk about emotional burnout. And actually, I'm already formulating a theory that Pochettino has learnt from this because he's so focused on the emotional side of, of his players. That's That's been actually hugely surprising because when he when he turned up, we just assumed that he was going to run them into the ground, have them playing like uh, machines in this ideologue, um, fo- one, one formation that he sticks to forever and that's that. And if they're not going to cut it they're going to go and, and we got rid of Kabul, Kapu etc etc actually it's, it's not like that at all he's very hands-on he's very kind of arm around the shoulder man management is his thing the way he speaks about Deli Ali like a son um, and, and he's, he actually gets inside his players heads and works out their individual motivations and understands them as people not just as hmm. footballers I mean just the, the weekend just gone the, the way he spoke about Ryan Mason it was beautiful. It was it was absolutely lovely to see, and maybe that is him learning from from the way he was worked under Bielsa, and you know perhaps Bielsa's moved on as well. But I'm um, yeah, it's also fascinating, um, guys. We've been speaking for a long time, but before we go, I just wanted us to answer a, a question that came in from Ollie Xcore, um, who's a very very nice man from Twitter. Uh, he sent an email to the extra inch at thefightingcock.co.uk, and he wanted to get our thoughts on. The FA's plans on expanding the number of homegrown players in Premier, Premier League and Football League squads post-Brexit. And I did think this was interesting. And it's something I've I've long been in favour of from a, from a Spurs youth team perspective and England youth team, England team perspective. Um, but I'm interested to get your thoughts. Nathan, wh- where do you stand on this one? Yeah, this idea that sort of um, a, a greater limitation on 
on foreign players in Premier League tight. Uh, I I've tweeted as much, but I think it would be um I think it would be a fucking travesty. I think it would really significantly damage the league. Um I I think that 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 would be based on sort of an, an arrogance over the quality of English players. Not that we don't have a, a very good bunch of English players and not that we um, shouldn't make better use of our young ta- English talents, um, but to act like we could maintain the quality of the league after knocking out a third of the foreign talent in in the league um is, is simply ridiculous it, it would be it's nice to think that these sort of things would would help bring through young players but i think the reality is that with english becoming players becoming um an even bigger asset than they currently are and we see the inflated prices for english play, players versus foreign ones because you need to fulfill your quotas um that they simply all the young talent will just migrate towards the manchester clubs and they'll still sit on the bench there because that's where all the talent will be. Um, and it will only make it more top-heavy. And I don't think that it would lead to to more minutes for young players. I think you need to reward the positive rather than punish the negative. Yeah, that's a, that's a solid argument. And it's very difficult to uh, to disagree. The only thing I would say is maybe there's a middle ground where rather than potentially limit the number of foreign players, we actually... In, well, something I, I've always been in favour of is is having no limit on the number of players on the bench. Perfect. You, you can have no limit of, of players on the bench as long as they are uh, English or homegrown and under 21 or something like that, under 23, something like that. I think that's kind of a best of both worlds um, solution to, to that problem. John, do you have any particularly strong opinions on this concept? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a weird one. I think this is clearly being done because they're trying to head off I guess an assumption they're having that something about work permits is going to change post Brexit, mm. um, and so because I think the the I think everyone is aware of the fact that the the Premier League is a, is a big product. It is a, a a big chunk of GDP. I know a lot of people pull out all of that stuff about uh, individual supermarkets being more pr- uh, productive in terms of money than the Premier League, but it it is a product that that, that, that and Nathan says you know. It's, that product would be affected if you started messing around with 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 these levels of, of British players. I think the frustration for me is I'm a firm believer, as, as I think you are suggesting you are, Wendy, that you need to give youth chance to develop, and and that the best chance of of, of development is through playing minutes. Like we we know that Deli Ali hugely benefited by the fact that he played over fifty times for MK Dons before he arrived at Spurs. Um, look at some of the some of the the England youth players coming through now, and and they are getting time around various um, clubs in various divisions, and now in various leagues in Europe. And I think that's really good. I've already mentioned Lewis Cook. Lewis Cook spent two seasons playing for Leeds in the central midfield from the age of seventeen, and I have no doubt whatsoever that that's why he is so far ahead of the curve. I think than a lot of other centre midfielders in similar positions. Um, the frustration for me is we seem to have got to a point where we realised that actually the best way of dealing with that was sending players to leagues like the Bundesliga and getting time in, in foreign leagues. And I think that the problem is, is that because because there can be that sort of almost, I guess, nationalistic pride in, in when it comes to youth development, it, the assumption was, was well, if, our, if, our, if there are kids, we should develop them in our leagues. And I think that's just not true. You can, you can develop wh- whichever league you're in. And the m- most important thing is you're having competitive football somewhere. And so for me, it's a bit of a shame that we've, we've got to a point where actually, so take the Bundesliga, for example, it's the first time 
I think until about two years ago, only seven English English players had played in the Bundesliga. Now it's fourteen two two, two seasons later, and I think that's a, that's the turning point that we needed. And it would be a shame then for for that to be stopped because then all the players were brought and, like Nathan says, made to sit on the bench because they're not going to get on or everyone migrating to Manchester City and then sitting on the bench there. So that would be my thought on this. I think I don't know if it will be a benefit. You know, it's, you're risking you're playing with fire when you're just messing things around. I just think that the the system that we've got at the moment has reached a good point, and, and I, we shouldn't mess with it. Let's let's not go back to this nationalistic arrogance that we have in terms of saying, okay, yeah, we've had all your we've had all your fancy foreign coaching techniques and playing styles. We've learned from those, and now we've got the best, so we don't need you anymore. That would be mm-hmm. that would be a very bad thing. Um, before we go, guys, can I get a an article or a podcast or a book to recommend from from me either uh, from both of you for our further reading section? Um, Nathan, I'll start with you. Uh, I'm going to do that really smarmy thing I do where I recommend my guests writing. Um, John's been doing some some football and philosophy series stuff for Fansided. Um, you've only got two pieces out so far, but there's maybe going to be more on the way. Is that right, John? I'm not sure if there is more, but I, I'm, I'm always happy to write more. Um, <laughs> and they pay well, so it's nice. <laughs> um, awesome. Yeah, I've, I've got two pieces. One of them is uh, looking at particularly Pep Guardiola, which I think was is, is quite accessible for most people. I think the second one's a little bit more philosophical and maybe a little less interesting for, for people. I looked at the impact that actually Isaac Newton, of all people, had on the way that we talk about how footballers uh, play on the pitch. But yeah, I'm sure you you may enjoy those. I did. And John, did you have any, have you read anything that you recently that you'd like to recommend? I'm actually going to recommend a podcast episode. I've just finished listening to Robbie Dunn's um, No Cheering on the podcast, which is a fantastic podcast because he gets um, gets various people from the football media on and just talks to them about books that they've read and, and gets them to recommend five books that they find formative. And I've just listened to the Jonathan Wilson episode, and that's just a fantastic um, uh, episode. I really enjoyed that. So that's called the No Cheering on the Podcast Um podcast um, and I would recommend that. Very nice and I will have to recommend Alistair Gold's interview with Jesus Perez. Um, I don't want to give too much away because I found it absolutely fascinating. There's so much insight there Um, so I won't say anything further but do read it if you're a Spurs fan. It's absolutely essential reading uh, to to know more about how he works with Pochettino and and the squad. Um, I retweeted it but if you I'm sure if you just look on on well, Google it. Alistair Gold, Jesus Perez. Um, Football London. It's really, really good. Really great article. Really good interview from Alistair. Uh, thank you very much, guys. John, where can people find you on uh, on Twitter and the internet generally? Yeah, Twitter is the best place. So I'm at John underscore McKenzie and John doesn't have an H and McKenzie has an A. So so awkward. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Something like, like Cliff Richard or something, isn't it? When he invented yeah. his new name, he made sure he didn't have the S on the end. So he had to make a point of saying it. So I always make a point of saying it. You'll remember now. And Nathan, Nathan A. Clark on Twitter. Always. Always. Thank you very much. It's been a fascinating listen. And John, we, we must get you back on later in the season. Thanks for your time. Much appreciated. Uh, and we'll be back with more episodes in the very near future. Bye for now. It's the fighting. Clock. It's the fighting. It's the fighting. Clock. Oh, that was really interesting, mate. Yeah.